hello everybody. Welcome to the October 2020 podcast. Great to have you along as ever to listen to my witterings. So another month and another coronavirus update. With um, what seems like monotonous regularity, the rules keep moving and changing and one minute they're getting better and the next minute they're getting worse again. It's really very hard to know what to make of it all really, isn't it? It's not true to say that there are no live performances going ahead at the moment because some of the relaxations in numbers that can attend live events provided that social distancing is in place has meant that there are some magicians out there who are embracing this this new regime, if you like, and are looking to put on live events and more power to them. That's what I say. But it is very difficult to know what's going to happen as the year progresses. If, if you're to believe the media, they would have us believe that Christmas is going to be cancelled. I don't know how they know this, given that there are still two or three months to go until Christmas. Although I suppose anybody booking a Christmas do is thinking about it now and would therefore, whatever they decide to do, will be coloured by the situation at the moment. But things could get worse or get better. Who knows? As uh, some wag actually put it, what they intend to do with their family Christmas is they're going to they're going to kill a turkey and then invite 30 family members round to the funeral. Well, it's one way to get the family together at Christmas, isn't it? It's also interesting, I think, to note the way that magic conventions that are taking place normally at the start of next year have also taken two different approaches to how they're going to deal with the situation. The world's biggest magic convention, the Blackpool Magic Convention, well, they've decided to to cut their losses and say, okay, nothing in 2021 at all. Let's move on to 2022. Whereas Vanishing Inc. have taken a slightly different approach. Their session convention, which was due to take place in January, they've simply moved it six months or so down into the middle of the year. However, mindful of the fact that the situation may not be perfectly uh, normal by then, they have limited the number of people who can attend live to just 300, but they will be streaming the entire event to an online audience as well thereby giving them limitless almost numbers of people who could, if they wish, attend virtually. So that's that's an interesting com- combination of things, isn't it? Having part live and part online event. And certainly magicians, I think, have been really good the way they've tried to embrace the online possibilities with things such as Zoom to either perform or present lectures. A lot of magic clubs have been putting on, to keep their members energised and engaged, been putting on a lot of of zoom lectures of course and these seem to have gone down pretty well with those who enjoy that type of thing and uh, it's good to see that that sort of thing is happening because otherwise what would magic clubs what would they do there's a real danger they go completely out of existence so i think it's great that a lot of magic clubs have been doing that but how long you can sustain that of course is open to conjecture I'm really hoping that as the year goes on, we're currently in a bit of a, certainly in the UK, we're in a bit of a spike in terms of infections from coronavirus. Uh, And this is not helpful. Um, But assuming that we don't then go into a national lockdown again, the hope is that it will peak and will start to come down again. And my personal view is that I can see this going up and down and up and down until such time, sometime hopefully next year, that we get some sort of a vaccine so that we can start to immunise people against the infection. Oh dear, these things are sent to try us, aren't they?
I was doing a bit of magical spring cleaning the other day and out of my cupboard I dragged this plastic container which I discovered was completely full of file cards. You see, whenever I do a show, and I've always done the same thing, whenever I do a show I have a file card and on one side I put all the details of the show in terms of where I have to go, what time I'm starting, how many people are going to be there, the name of the booker, the address of the venue and so on. And then on the other side I have the running order of the tricks that I intend to do. And after I've done the show, I tick the ones that I did and put a line through any that I didn't happen to do or didn't get round to on this occasion. Now, as well as having a... I've got a digital version of all of this because I enter it all onto a database. But these file cards I find very useful to take along to the show as a physical reminder, especially when I get, once I'm at the venue, of what I'm going to do in the show. Now, the reason I mention it is because I, I just as you do when you when you're going to throw something away or you're tidying up, you find you start to get distracted, don't you, by the contents of the thing you look. And I started to 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 look at the file cards and looking at the dates, and I realised that they stretched back over thirty years, nearly forty years in some cases, which seemed incredible. I'm surprised that that the card itself hadn't disintegrated into a powdery mush somewhere, and then I started to look at the tricks and I was shocked, if that's the right word, to discover that some of the tricks that I was doing all those years ago when I first started, I'm still doing. Now, I may not be doing them in the same way. I'm probably not. But the tricks themselves were basically the same. And that then led me to think, oh, my goodness, is that is that terrible? Is this, isn't this awful that 40 years ago I was doing this routine and I am still doing a version of it today. That's that's so stick in the mud, is it? Isn't it? And then I thought, well, is it? Because if some if something really works for you, if something doesn't date, and that the the presentation and the props and the basically the general premise of the whole trick is still relevant, then if audiences are enjoying it and you enjoy doing it, then why shouldn't you carry on doing it? And it does make you think, though, doesn't it, that a lot of the time we do tend to be attracted to the, the latest trick, the, the, the new thing that's just come out on the market that is new to us as the performer. And it gets us excited. We say, oh, that would be great in my act. And sometimes traditional things that you've been doing for years may get pushed to one side in favour of these new shiny objects that, that uh, you've just bought from, from the magic dealer. So does it necessarily mean, however, that the things that you've pushed aside no longer have any value? I would suggest that it probably doesn't. And that after a while, quite often, those new routines, you try them out, perhaps not quite as good as you thought they were or, were, or that maybe they just turn out that they don't suit you particularly. And you find yourself going back to the tried and tested because I think particularly when you're doing shows for money, the last thing you want to be doing is experimenting too much you know you want to go with tricks that you know work in all conditions and that you'll feel comfortable with and provided the audience is still like them as i say if it ain't broke don't fix it it's okay i think to carry on doing them however having said all that of course if you never changed anything in your act and that they act and they used to say of course that um, vaudeville magicians would keep the same act in the same sequence pretty much their entire career because they would always see different audiences 
and it became their act as known and that's what they would always do. Of course, these days, that's pro probably not the case, especially with television. Anybody who works on television will know that once you've done it something once on television, you need something new because everybody has kind of seen it. So you can't keep repeating it. And to a certain extent, that can be true if you work for a long time in a local area. If you're the go-to magician for corporate events or for stand-up comedy magic or for children's shows, then you're going to keep coming across people who've seen you before and if you never have any new tricks especially with children's shows you know once the kids have seen seen some of your magic or some of your games and activities then you need to be able to ring the changes because although there's a certain mileage in doing things that they already know if there's a surprise element to it then it doesn't work because they know in advance what's going to happen and they may blurt out what the ending's going to be and spoil everything and I suppose also one might want to, like a close-up magician doing table hopping or something like that, might also want to change what he's doing simply because it gets so boring if you never change certain... If you never change anything in your act and you do the same tricks 20 or 30 times a night, well, you'd go insane, wouldn't you, really? Well, so I, I certainly would. So it's nice to have variations and to bring in some new things from time to time. But as for throwing away the old things, well... OK, so there were these tricks on these file cards from 30 or 40 years ago. And whereas my initial reaction was, oh, isn't this awful? Then I felt rather pleased to think that for all those years that those tricks that I learned when I was young have all this time been helping me to earn a living and to, to entertain people of all different ages. And they still are today. And rather than be upset by that, I was really rather pleased. I thought, isn't that just simply wonderful? Two or three years ago, I wrote an ebook called Marketing Yourself, in which I went through in some detail all the various ways that I'd come across and used myself for marketing myself as a performer. Because I think um, these days there are, of course, so many different possibilities, so many different ways of using both online and offline media in order to promote ourselves that it can be a little bit well, almost, you can't see the wood for trees. There are so many different possibilities that it's hard to know which to, to, to actually go with. And the idea of marketing yourself, the book, was to try and set it all out in such a way that the reader could get an overview of everything that was available, think about some principles of marketing generally, and then make a decision about what would be right for them. And one of the things that I did mention in that book, and which I think is, is worth reiterating, is that the amount that you spend on marketing yourself has to be have some sort of a correlation to the amount of money that is generated by the shows that you get from that marketing. Now, I know that may sound incredibly obvious. However, I think it's very easy to get carried away with the excitement, if that's the right word, of promoting yourself in all sorts of different ways and of spending an inordinate amount of money doing it. I think particularly with things like Facebook ads and Google ads, if you're not careful, it's very easy to rack up month by month considerable costs, even if you put a cap on it, still rack up a lot of um, expenditure in promoting yourself through pay-per-click ads. Pay-per-click ads are or can be, if you do it right, very effective. But the problem is that if you're not carefully monitoring 
just how much work they are producing, they can become something that basically all your money that you make from shows is being drained down the Google or Facebook hole. Now, although it may seem, as I say, an obvious thing to say, well, of course, you, you don't spend more than you make. But I think I, I, I know certainly for me about it must have been about four years ago, I decided that I would have a very, very careful look at where my shows were coming from and what it was costing me to put the ads in place. And I was shocked to discover and embarrassed to my, for myself to discover that I was pretty much only really breaking even on the deal. I wasn't making a loss, but I was hardly making any money at all. And this seemed ridiculous. How can I be doing all these Facebook ads and Google ads and everything else and not have realised that the amount of money that I was actually um, that was being absorbed in order to do this was getting gradually out of control? Now, much as I like performing and would not want to not perform, to perform for an entire year and at the end of it, in financial terms, have only basically broken even is, is a complete nonsense, especially when you're trying to earn a living from it. So this led me then to, to look at the advertising that I was using in more detail and to basically hard-nosed decisions about, well, is this magazine advert producing any type of income? Is Are these Facebook ads really producing books yes they're in producing inquiries lots of inquiries but are those inquiries then leading to bookings and it caused me to completely re-evaluate where I was going and to and I realized that I would actually be better off not quite but almost be better off to do no publicity at all and do virtually no shows than I was to publicize myself massively get some work but then only break even it was it was a redundant waste of time almost so i mention this because obviously at the moment these are not normal times and many of us are the last thing we're probably thinking about is how to promote ourselves but once things do start to get to get up and running again and the inquiries don't forget that you're getting now are probably for next year so you do have to still have a presence otherwise people are not going to contact you with those inquiries for a year or 18 months ahead then it's important isn't it to make sure that there's a, there's a definite balance between what you spend and, and what you get because if there isn't like me you're going to end up basically working for nothing as the editor of Magic Scene, I get to work on and edit lots of articles featuring famous personalities and magical performers. And one of the things that I've noticed is that nearly all the top people early on in their careers or maybe early on in their lives even have been inspired by another magician or magicians. I think it's really important, especially when you're first starting out, isn't it, to have a role model that's a positive one to aspire to be perhaps as good as or like another magician who's already made it and it seems to me it seems a, a common very common thread that most people who've ended up doing well have often had a very good early positive influences on them it can be doesn't have to be by a, a, aspiring to be a famous magician it could be a magician from the local club 
who you meet as a as a young magician when you first when you first join perhaps and you become friendly with this person and they are able to guide you a bit and give you advice and you perhaps admire them as a performer and you can learn a lot like this by having this positive role model influence you in good ways. I know when I was a kid uh, my, my first positive role model was Johnny Hart. Johnny Hart at the time was uh, when I first noticed him when I was just getting into magic as a kid was um, one of those people who had just he just won the first I think it was the inaugural Young Magician of the Year competition and Harry Stanley who owned Harry Stanley's Unique Magic Studio um, sort of managed him for many years and promoted him and he became a, a, a world famous cabaret performer traveling all over the world um, doing his his shows and I really liked him because he was very young and to me he oozed magical charm the way he dressed the way that he performed his his signature thing was the multi almost the appearing budgery guards which were on which he had between his fingers almost like billiard balls and and this sort of thing he was he was very individual and he was on television a few times and I was totally inspired by him and I really wanted to be like him and in fact I can remember as a kid going and buying the multiplying billiard balls because I thought well I, I like the budgery guards but I can't do those but I do like the idea of producing things from between my fingers and and, and so he, he kind of inspired me to to try and be a manipulative magician and for a while that's something that I practiced and then later on in life when I went to university um, I, I met a fellow magician who's the same age as me Chris Payne and he and I were a similar age and he inspired me a lot and, and he's still my friend today and and still does inspire me to to always be better to always be good and so having these positive influences is not just something that you need when you first start but it's great to have it throughout your whole magical career or your magical life you are in some ways the sum total of the people that you mix with and the more positive role models that you have the more people who exert a good influence on you and help you to to keep progressing with your magic i would suggest the better it is I think nothing is worse because magic can be quite a lonely hobby or existence, can't it, sometimes? And if you don't have anybody to share your highs and lows with or to ask advice um, on a, perhaps a particular problem that you have in magic, then you can stagnate and get bored with it all and eventually fall out, fall out of love with it. Whereas if somebody else is inspiring you to go on, to do more, to be better, then you keep your interest and it's something that, that, for many of us, lasts our entire lives. I'm sure you'll agree with me when I say that every magic trick has a guilty secret. Now, the secret might be a special move or moves that you need to do in order to make the magic work. Or it might be that some of the props are specially gimmicked. And because of this, and because we as the magician know the secret, I think sometimes we we kind of get consumed a little bit by the guilt that we feel when we're presenting something as being ordinary when it isn't. And the way this manifests itself, this guilt, is that we, we start to overprove that things are ordinary, either by what we say or by what we do. So an example might be, let's say you have a packet trick and you're going to show some cards and these cards are 
supposedly going to be blank on both sides. Now because we know that actually three of these cards have got a card face printed on one side, we start to devise all sorts of intricate ways of counting and recounting and flipping cards over and doing half passes and everything else in order to apparently show, in a very convoluted way often, that the cards are blank on both sides. In fact, the fact that we are trying to make it so obvious that they are blank on both sides may well lead astute spectators to think, hmm, that's a bit odd. Why is he handling it like that? Must be something funny about those cards. So whereas the purpose was to take away the, the, uh, the image that there might be something on the cards, in fact, what it does is it draws attention to them. Whereas if you just take them, do a simple little count and flash both sides, job done. You don't make a big thing of it. If you don't make an issue out of a particular element, whether it be the prop or, or a move, if you don't make an issue out of it, then the spectators are unlikely to as well. Whereas if you overprove, if you go on and on and on trying to show that something is innocent, then the more you try to prove it, the more it's going to look guilty. It's the same with, with props generally, isn't it? If you take out a deck of cards and you say, I've got here an ordinary pack of cards, as you can see, all the faces are different. My goodness, why would we say that? Of course all the faces would be different, surely. That's what a pack of cards is. And of course it's ordinary, isn't it? Because by merely using the word ordinary and different faces, all the faces are different, you immediately, for some spectators, have signalled that there are A, packs that are not ordinary, and B, that there may well be decks which don't have 52 different card faces. Something which, for some people, they might never have perhaps imagined. If you bring out a pack of cards and you fan them and you hold them up towards a spectator and you say, do they look like they're all there? Then that is a completely different way of saying it rather than, and these cards have all got different faces. In fact, I, I often do this. I, I'll just... If you're going to do a, pack, a trick with a pack of cards and you want to show that they are ordinary, rather than saying it by fanning them, showing them and then saying, um, do these cards look like they're all there? And then I usually pause and I say, do I look like I'm all there? I make a joke out of it. And that's it. That's all you need. And then you just get on with the trick. But a lot of times just taking a pack of cards out of the box, just flashing them casually and just getting a card selected is enough. And this is the beauty, I think, of, of doing magic with everyday objects. Because everyday objects have, uh, in the minds of the spectators, something intrinsically ordinary and normal about them. They don't realise that a coin can be gimmicked in sometimes incredibly devious ways. If they see a £2 coin, it's a £2 coin. And unless you handle it in a suspicious way, they're going to believe it's an ordinary £2 coin envelopes, pieces of rope, uh, banknotes. These are things which are readily identifiable and packs of cards too, although obviously there are lay people who've bought special packs of cards in joke shops and things like that. But certainly the other objects, they are things which it probably would never occur to them that an envelope could be a special envelope. So why would we go and overprove that it's innocent, empty or whatever when just literally showing the object, an object that everybody immediately recognises, is usually enough. 
So I, I think I know for myself in the past, I've been guilty of this overproving, particularly with packet tricks where, you, you know, you've got so many moves that you can use to to overprove that you end up using them all. But actually, by simplifying the magic and taking away those feelings of guilt by just assuming that people will think that the envelope is ordinary, that the coin is ordinary without you having to prove it, that's a far better way to go. And actually, in the in the end, is easier for you to perform because you can cut out loads of moves that were actually superfluous moves in any case. So it's a win-win situation really, isn't it? Are you world class at getting ready? Now by this I mean there are some people who, if they're working on a trick or developing something that's new for them, they will spend what seems like forever refining and changing and tweaking it and never feeling that they ever get to the point where they can actually go out and perform it. Now there's absolutely nothing wrong of course with refining magic and with revisiting things that we're already doing in order to see if it can be improved. I'm totally in favour of that. But if that replaces the actual performance of the trick where incidentally the performance is often the thing that tells you more than any amount of thinking and rehearsal and tweaking and fiddling around with will ever do. Actually getting out and doing it can very quickly tell you whether it's a goer or not. That if you're going to keep on refining things to the point where you never do them, I would say that it's rather redundant. Yes, you have to get to a point where something, a trick is serviceable, where it's workable, where you feel confident enough to go out and perform it. But it may not be perfect. In fact, it almost certainly won't be perfect. At the very least, even if the, all the methodology is correct, I often find personally it's things like the patter and presentation and the gags come almost as as you perform it to lay people. Things happen, situations occur to you while in the, in the sort of um, intensity of an, a performance, which then leads you to add these moments or these words or these gags in permanently and they become part of that trick but sitting around thinking what gags can I put in here or what could I say at this point forever and never actually getting out and doing or saying any of it is in my view not going to get you to the final product. Now I'm sure we all know people who have got a trick or tricks that they're working on every time you see them they show you the latest variation or version of that trick. And that's great. As I say, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think the question to ask them, have you actually gone out and done this anywhere? If they have, brilliant. Because then the tweaking and the additional thinking that they're going to do about the trick is coming from a place of performance. It's coming from a place where genuine progress can be made. But if they haven't done it, well, no, it's, it's, it's not quite ready yet. No, I, I just need to, if I could just think of a way, if I could just, mm, it's never going to happen. The chances are that so many things that are in those stages of constant tweaking, because the person is world-class at getting ready and never, never world-class at actually going out and doing it, the trick is probably going to wither on the vine and will never see the light of day. And that's a tremendous shame because... If that person was to go out and take a chance and give it a go and they did learn that there were things that they could change, 
then the product that they would end up with, the, the trick that they would end up being able to use on a consistent basis would indeed be so much better. It would have more substance to it and in fact probably the perfect and in inverted commas version if you like of that trick would they'd be able to get to it quicker than just sitting and fiddling and thinking and tweaking. Well, thank you so much for spending half an hour of your time in my company and listening to this podcast. Podcasts seem to be getting increasingly popular, don't they? There are quite a few new ones, magic theme ones, that seem to be appearing. And I think it's great because I like the audio format. It's nice to be able to listen along while you're doing other things. And, uh, and I think they all have something to offer. But I appreciate that uh, you spending the time listening to mine and the fact that this podcast has been around for many years now I like to think that it still has something of value and the fact that you're listening to it means that it probably does so I look forward to seeing you in November in the meantime have a good month